0: Oh that I had a, oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wherefaring men that I might leave my people and go for them. They be all adulterers an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongues like their bows for lies, and they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. They know not me, save the Lord. Take ye heed every one of his neighbour every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not in his brother, for every brother will utter supplant, and every neighbor. Or walk with slanders, they will deceive every one, his neighbor they will not speak the truth. they have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit, through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will melt them and try them, and how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out; it speaks deceit, one speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth. But in his heart he layeth in wait. But I shall, shall I not visit them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged for such a nation as this? Wow. Where did Jeremiah want to go? Desert.
1: desert. Yeah. To a wayfarer's lodging place in the desert. What would that be like? Lonely and maybe a place of not many comforts or amenities. You can see that as being kind of stark and grim. Why would you want to go there?
0: It was better than where it was. Why? Because of the people.
1: Yeah. It, it's just such a uh, it has such anguish. Seeing his people like this, him being around his people because they're just, they're terrible. They're so dishonest and, and deceitful and violent and wicked. He wants to get away from them. It just grieves him too much to be around them. He'd rather be out in the desert in a little shack with nothing than to have to be around these people. That's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty strong statement. But look at them. He says they're all adulterers, that are, they're all unfaithful to God. They're all treacherous. They're liars. They go from bad to worse, from evil to evil. You know, what happens in in a, in a group where everybody lies?
2: Nobody would know the truth.
1: Yeah, nobody would know the truth and nobody can do what? Trust can. Yeah, you can trust. You know, trust is based on honesty and integrity and and being able to count on what somebody says. If you can't count on anybody telling you the truth, then it's kind of every man for himself and watch your back. Because who knows who's double-crossing you when. And so it's really a horrible way to live. You know, a society, a culture, that just becomes totally dishonest and deceitful. You can't work together. Welcome to the USA, you know. I mean, that's largely the way it's become for us. And, and that's the way these people were. You know, so be on guard against your neighbor. Don't trust your brother. You know, because they're all lying. You know, you have to beware of even your closest friend. You, you got anybody in your life that you're sure you can trust? Imagine if you didn't. Imagine if even the people you trust were dishonest and deceptive and would stab you in the back if they got a chance. Can you imagine how that would feel? That may have happened to you sometime. There might have been somebody you really trusted that proved to be dishonest. That is a real blow. He said, there's not even a close friend that can be trusted among these people. They're all so dishonest. They're all being Jacobs, uh, you know, acting craftily in verse four, you know, grabbing things for themselves and taking advantage of others. So, you know, the relationships between people had eroded, you know, and it's just horrible. They, they, uh, they, They really developed lying into one of their greatest skills. This is what he's saying in verse 5 they've taught their tongue to speak lies I mean you've got to work at it to lie as well as they do you know it's like they've taken some you know uh, masters level course at uh, dishonesty you know they, they, that man they really do this up well uh, it wasn't easy but they were willing to go for it I mean he's being very sarcastic with that but wow Is that true of us? Any of us that deceptive, that dishonest? Where, you know, pretty much what we say is whatever we think is going to have the effect we want it to have at the moment, instead of really being concerned about the truth when we speak. That's what was going on here, you know. And so the Lord is, you know, very upset with them. You know, he's going to have to punish them. He said, what else can I do? Verse 7. You know, and again, they're deceitful. Look at verse 8. With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor. But inwardly, he sets an ambush for him. You know, so they say, oh, everything's great. But on the inside, they're trying to trap. You can't trust them. He says, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? What else can I do, God say? When they become so constitutionally dishonest and deceptive, I have no, no other choice but to destroy them. Thoughts and comments? Yes. I think it shows if you live for God, you think of others live for yourself, but when
2: you live for yourself, you're all by yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's a really miserable life just to live for yourself. Other thoughts? 10 to 16.
2: For the mountains I will take up a weeping and wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness a dirge. Because they are laid waste so that no one passes through, and the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled, they are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. Who is the wise man that he may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare? Why Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert? So that no one passes through. The Lord said because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the Baal as their fathers taught them. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel behold I will feed them this people with a warm wood and give them poison water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them
1: until I have annihilated them. Okay. Wow. (laughs) How bad is it going to be? Verse 10 and 11. Ruins. Ruins. What kind of Kind of animals are going to be there. Jacks. What? Why why jackals?
0: Scavengers?
1: Yeah. They don't take a lot of pasture and all that. They can kind of, you know, eke out an existence, scavenging, foraging, you know, making do on whatever. It's about the only kind of creatures they'll be sort of solitary, you know, kind of uh Fend for themselves kind of creatures. This, this desert wasteland, you know, won't sustain wildlife in general. So it's just it's just desolate, ruins, you know, devastation. No wonder Jeremiah and the Lord are mourning and weeping. What a tragedy to take a fertile land. You remember what God called Canaan when he brought the Israelites into it. What? Milk and honey. That's not exactly how you describe this now, is it? You know, wow. What a horrible reversal. And, And he says, he asked the question in verse 12. Why? Why has the land become a desert wasteland? And what's the answer? To the wall. You know, the Lord doesn't make this overly complicated, does he? This is kind of spiritual ABCs. You know, they disobeyed me. And they're walking after the males stubbornly. That's why, you know, these people are really slow. you have to spell it out? Like, you know, watch, one plus one is two. You know, you feel like you're kind of in, you know, kindergarten here in these verses, you know, okay, so why am I doing this to you? Because you disobeyed me, you know. It's like, that's why you have to treat them like little children, you know, naughty, naughty. And uh, this is this is what I've got to do to you. And so he's going to destroy them. He's going to scatter them. He's going to send the sword after them. Notice in verse 15 and 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, look at those verses, 15 and 16. What are the verbs? says <coughs> After says. Feed. Feed. Who feeds? God. What's the next one? Give. Give. Who gives? God. God. What's the next one? Scatter. Who scatters? God. God and so on and so on send the sword etc God is the one who is going to punish this people he's the one that's going to uh, resettle these people in other locations you know they're going to lose out on their land It's talking about the Babylonian captivity that's a punishment because they've not obeyed God comments or questions
0: Seventeen to twenty-two. Thus says Lord of hosts: Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste for, and take up the wailing for us, that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? We are put to great shame, for we have left the hand. Because they have cast down their dwellings, Now hear the word of the Lord are you women? And let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and every one her neighbor a dirge. And <clears throat> for death has come up through our windows, has entered our palaces, cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares. Twenty-two. 22. Thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung in the open field, and like the sheep after the reaper, that no one will gather them. The Lord uses a lot of ways
1: of trying to impress them with the seriousness of the judgment, and here He goes to a uh, custom that I think seems really odd to us: the custom of using professional mourners. Does that seem odd to you? You know, someone dies and you hire people to come and weep and wail over their death. Well, why did that seem odd to us?
0: Pretty meaningless. <laughs>
1: yeah, because it seems. Superficial. They don't know the person. Yeah, insincere, superficial. You know, they're just doing their job. They're getting paid to grieve the deceased. And yet, that was the custom throughout Bible times, was to use. Hired professional mortars. What in the world were they thinking when they did that? That's not the point of the text. But we kind of have to deal with that to understand the text. Can you see any value in hiring a professional mortar?
2: The Egyptians didn't.
1: Well, that's always valuable. <laughs> Why? Why was it so common? Because it was a common practice in the ancient world. But it seems so weird to us. Can you see any good coming out of hiring a professional mourner? Maybe to have someone weep with you. To have them weep with you? (laughs) Maybe so you don't waste time weeping. Make them waste their time. Have you ever seen somebody who maybe uh, maybe loses a loved one that's very close to them, and sometimes will say. You know, how are they dealing with it? And what is one of, the, one of the things, one of the common patterns that we'd say when we ask the question, how are they dealing with it? What might we say? Holding it in. They're holding it in. You ever heard that? In maybe expressing it in some other way like that, but like they're not really able to cry, they're not really able to grieve, they haven't really been able to express it. They, almost like they're in denial. But, but, but also that they're just like, they, they just can't really let out their feelings and emotions. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Have you ever been so upset about something that you couldn't even really grieve it? That you couldn't even really express it? Now, what is the one thing that may, that, that probably more than an onion makes you cry? Someone close to you does. Yeah, that. Other or, people cry Other people cry? Do you not find that? Mm-hmm. When you see someone else crying, does it make you feel like crying? What if you don't even know the person or know what they're crying for? Don't you still have that urge to cry? I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect the use of professional mourners was really an aid to help the family and friends express their emotions, grieve themselves. I know it sounds weird. I'm not trying to defend it or deny it. But I'm trying to say let's get over feeling like how weird this is. Because there is some logic behind it. And, and go more to the idea, what's he saying? You know, he's saying that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and devastated. And so he says, man, you need to call for the warning women. Get the professionals in here because it's going to be too-
2: you're going to need
1: them. You're gonna need them. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of call for their services. <laughs> you know, that's probably not what you want to hear. You know, it's almost like saying, for us it might be like saying, uh, you know, man, get you better get a bunch of people through funeral homeschool. What do they call, there's a name for that, isn't there? What's a What's a funeral home person trained in? mortician mortician. is there a mortician school there must be hey it's like saying we better get a bunch of people through mortician school in a hurry because we're going to need them you know uh, maybe even for us embalming you know training you know go out here and get all the embalmers and all the morticians lined up and ready to go you know, cause because there are gonna be a lot of call for their services. That's what he's saying. It's an irony. It's 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 a kind of a, a backdoor way of saying, wow, you know, they better get here in a hurry because they're gonna have a lot of grieving to do. Uh, because it's horrible. Uh, those who were unable to blush earlier in chapter eight now are put to great shame. In fact, look at what he tells the mourning women to do in verse 20. teach their daughters and their neighbors. neighbors. The demand for their services are going to be so great they need to recruit and train other people. There's not going to be enough mourning to go around for all the deaths there's going to be. It's like saying, man, get all the morticians of the world to start teaching their kids and their neighbors because there are going to be so many deaths. There's not going to be nearly enough morticians to handle it. That'd be the That'd be probably what we'd say, since professional mourning seems kind of uh, weird to us. And uh, so, and look at verse twenty-one. As if it weren't enough that there's death in the streets. Where's what's death doing? Climbing the window. Wow, you know, you can't even come inside your house and shut the door and be safe. Death's climbing through the windows and carting off people. You know, you can't keep death out. Again, th- these are just very graphic ways of trying to impact people, trying to say, you don't realize how bad this is going to be. This is, this is what it's like. I like these vivid poetic descriptions in the prophets. Not that this is a particularly pleasant scene, but wow, he picks out some really vivid ways of describing the devastation. Can't you just see death, you know, coming through the window? You know, the grim (coughs) reaper. We would sometimes use that uh, kind of uh, analogy. Comments and questions through 22. I was just
2: going to validate what you said about... um, Hiring professional mourners so that we might be able to express ourselves better in verse 18 it says let them being the mourners, make haste and take up wailing for us so that our eyes might shed tears so yeah
1: makes sense yeah i think it makes more sense than it seems to us on the surface though i still doubt that uh, we're going to adopt that custom in any time in the real near future but uh but i do think there's a little more logic to it than what appears on the surface Uh, The fact that a lot of people in a lot of cultures have done that, you know, means they've seen some value in it. Other thoughts? All right. um, 23
2: to 26. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising his loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the houses of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart.
1: So don't trust in your wisdom, your might, or your riches. Now you think about who do people in our culture kind of uh, honor and respect? Celebrities. Celebrities? What kind of celebrities? Rich ones. Rich ones. Most of them are, I guess. Ones that they want to be like. Yeah, but, but celebrities in what areas? We've probably got two or three areas of celebrities that are big for us. Well, acting, Actors, sports,
0: sports, music, yeah.
1: yeah. Acting, entertainment, and sports are three big areas of celebrities. So think about sports in connection with, you know, boasting in your might. You know, the great athlete is really put up on a pedestal. Who else do we put up on a pedestal? President? Yeah, we do. What do we usually think about the president? What is their strength? Smart. We really put the scholar, the intellectual person, up on a pedestal. So, and and then the person who's successful. And when we when we if I say that person is a really successful person, what do you think they probably have a lot of? Money. money. We usually say success and we mean money. Isn't that true? <laughs> so, to a great extent for us too, we tend to boast in wisdom, might, and riches. He said, don't boast in those things. Those things are not the things to trust in. You know, what you ought to boast of is loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. That's what God delights. That's what we ought to value and treasure. It doesn't make any difference if you're a good athlete, if you're smart, or if you're rich. None of that stuff will last anyway. I mean, some of it won't even last through a lifetime. You know any 80-year-old men who are still playing? You know, professional football. You know, I don't know many 40-year-old men who still are anymore. You know, uh, and eventually. All this intellectual genius you know, goes away when we get Alzheimer's or whatever. And uh, some people <laughs> hang on to their money, but lots of them spend it by the time, or lose it by the time they get old. But it's certainly gone afterwards. So don't value those things. Don't trust in those things. Don't think of those things as being what's important. What's important is your character and living for God. Now, here's another thing you shouldn't boast in, thinking about the Jews, is their circumcision. They really put a lot of trust In this mark of belonging to God, this circumcision, just like they trusted in the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, sacrifices, you know, having the law, they trusted in circumcision. And and God says, the days are coming that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. What does he mean by that? All who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. They're
2: circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart.
1: That's exactly right. They've cut off the piece of the flesh. They're physically circumcised, but they've not cut the sin out of their heart. So they're not really uncircumcised in character. The physical circumcision was just sort of a symbol of cutting the flesh, the sin, out of our life, out of our heart. He says, and he he, he mentions a list of, of, of people, of nations that were circumcised but not circumcised. Egypt, and Judah, and Edom, and the sons of Ammon, and Moab, and those who inhabit the desert. Now, what do Edom, Ammon, and Moab all have in common? Yeah, descendants of Abraham with whom the covenant of circumcision was made. So you're not surprised that they circumcised also. Egypt did as well. But did it really help? Edom or Egypt, that they circumcised physically? Did that make them God's people? So will circumcision make Judah God's nation if they don't live for the Lord? How would it help them any more than it helped Egypt or Edom? And notice where he puts Judah. He sandwiches them right in between Egypt and Edom in this list of nations that are circumcised but not. That's really, that's really, uh, you know, humbling. They're no better than those other circumcised not nations who only have the physical sign, not the spiritual complement. So don't trust circumcision. It would almost be like saying, you know, uh, putting us in the category of, you know, other people who are baptized but don't live for the Lord. You know... I mean, you might list a number of denominations and put Christians right in the middle of those. Say, you guys are baptized, but you don't live. It. You know, how are you any different than anybody else? So, they shouldn't trust in anything but the Lord, and they've got to turn back to the Lord and live for Him to trust in Him. Yeah. Comments and questions? I
0: think it's cool in verse 23, talking about You know, you're not supposed to boast in your wisdom, you're not supposed to boast in your might, you're not supposed to boast in your riches, but then in 24, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. It's kind of like to have an intimate knowledge. Uh, And so when you know someone so well, you get to inquire their habits. So instead of boasting in our uh, my our wisdom our riches instead we're supposed to be uh, practicing loving kindness, justice and righteousness. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Other thoughts? Clint? could you uh, tie this in to first Corinthians one and how Paul talks about it, you know, we need to boast in the Lord, like right? what that
1: really means. Yeah, I mean certainly that's the passage one of the passages he's using in First Corinthians 1 to say we ought to be humble and we ought not to rely on, you know, uh, anything of worldly wisdom or worldly accomplishment or success or status or things like that. So that is, that's kind of the concept back here. Kimberly? Because these
2: things are from God, so I should be a- but,
1: uh, to him, not they're so just going to that's exactly right they thought of their boast as being self-accomplishments you know, here's what we've achieved and we glory in that instead of turning to the Lord and seeing everything we have comes from him and that's what we should glory in. other thoughts Well, chapter 10 is um, a little different.